0: Power is a good thing, right? Power is a good thing. Desiring power is not wrong. The main questions we must ask when it comes to power are, where is it from? Why do I want it? And how will I use it? Where is it from? Why do I want it? And how will I use it? When I talk about power, I'm not necessarily talking about position. I'm not necessarily talking about authority. All of us need power every single day. I'm not talking about the power to charge up your smartphone. I I often struggle in that regard, you know, with battery and the cord and who's got which cord and all that stuff. That's sometimes the power we're most concerned about, right? What's my battery life like today? (laughs) No, 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 no. I'm talking about the power to get up and go each day. The power to live life. The power to do good. The power to choose wisely. The power to endure even when you want to do exactly the opposite. Our need for power should be acknowledged in connection with the reality of and the acknowledgement of our weaknesses. When you know that you are weak, you understand your need for power. But as with most things, the power we want is not always the power we need. Even if we set aside... A sinful desire for power—you know—a desire to use that power then for selfish gain. If we set that aside, we also struggle with—we often struggle with this desi- with prioritizing the power that we actually need. We also struggle with prioritizing the power that we actually need. For example, it's not wrong to want power to manage your children wisely, is it? That's a good ability. It's a good power to want to have. But an even better prayer, an even greater power, what we need even more is power to love our children unconditionally. And if we miss that priority, if we swap those or raise up the latter over the former so that we neglect even the former, we usually cause harm to our children, but then also to ourselves. Prioritizing power. So what about you this morning? What about you? What about me? What kind of power do we actually need? Or we could ask, what kind of power do we need most? You might have in your mind this morning a certain conception of uh, an answer to that question. This is the power. Oh, Pastor, if you knew, this is the power right here that I need today and this week. Because I've got this and this and this and this happening. Or this one really big, really heavy thing. This is the power to get this done, the power to go here, the power to change this person, the power to change my circumstances. And yet God is saying, I want you to think about what is the power that you need most? To answer that question, let's look at God's word this morning at Acts chapter one. Acts chapter one. If you need a Bible, there's a stack of them. Beautifully twisted, right over there on the back count uh, on the back counter. Thank you, Sammy, for beginning that trend, right of the twisting of the Bibles. So they are right back there on the counter. If you need one, I really encourage you to have one open or have a Bible app open in front of you this morning that you can look at and follow along as we are reading. This is a reading from our. Uh, this is a passage from our reading this past Tuesday, last Tuesday, in our Bible reading plan. Listen to how Luke begins his account of the early church. In the first book, O Theophilus, we don't know who this is. Uh, The name means God-lover, Theosphileo, God-lover. Probably a a rich patron who had become a Christian recently. And this was an opportunity for Luke to be able to, to, to lay out not only the life and ministry of Jesus, but also the early days of the church, the first days of the church. So we're extremely blessed that Luke did this. So this first book that he mentions is, in fact, the Gospel of Luke, what we call the Gospel of Luke. He says in that first book, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he, Jesus, ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So, the first thing that I want to point out to you this morning, I want you to see the commonalities between the three parts that make up this passage. Let's dig in and try to understand what is God revealing in this passage. Yes, a bit of history. But I think we believe that God wants to speak to us through this sacred history, doesn't he? That this is his word. This is our burning bush this morning that he is speaking to us from. And it's a wonder to behold, isn't it? And so when we come with that excitement and that joy to look at his word, we're asking, what do we see here? How do we understand this? I think there are three parts that make up this passage. In each of these three sections, verses 1 through 3, verses 4 through 5, and verses 6 through 11, we find the same four elements present. Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the apostles, and talk about the kingdom of God. Those elements are mentioned by the writer here. Now, that being said, I believe it's critical that we see, that we recognize that though there are those four elements, Luke's emphasis on the Holy Spirit is obvious here. Luke wants us to understand what Jesus is telling us about, telling them about the Holy Spirit. He wants to bring that out very clearly. Now, that's not a surprise at all. Because if you read Luke's Gospel, of all the Gospels, at least the three synoptic Gospels, we call them, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we know that Luke has the greatest emphasis on the work of the Holy Spirit. We see that time and time again. So this is not surprising there. In fact, when we get to the book of Acts, we find that we are in the New Testament book which has the clearest emphasis on the Holy Spirit of all 27 books. Paul might pat himself on the back because he's got, he's got, he mentions the Spirit of God 27 times in his letter to the Romans, but that's number two. That's the number two slot. Luke more than doubles that with 56 references to the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. So we know that this is a key idea to understanding this book. Some, As some have rightly concluded, the name of this book maybe should not be the Acts of the Apostles. It should be the Acts of the Holy Spirit. We really see that clearly. So in light of that emphasis on the Holy Spirit... Let me suggest that in verses 1 through 3, we are hearing about the apostles. Take a look on the screen here. We are hearing about the apostles being commanded through the Spirit in verses 4 through 5. About the apostles being baptized with the Spirit. And in verses 6 through 11, being empowered by the Spirit. There's kind of a roadmap for us to help us understand what we see in this passage Commanded through the Spirit, baptized with the Spirit, and and then empowered by the Spirit. So let's keep these in mind as we just go one section at a time and make sure that we understand what God is communicating to us here. First of all, take a look at how in Acts chapter 1, Luke summarizes the final 13 verses of his gospel. So if we had a chance to look back at Luke 24, verses 36 through 49, we would, in fact, read there how Jesus not only presented himself alive to them after his sufferings by many proofs, right? Listen to me, see me, touch me. Do you have something to eat? Many proofs, right? Not only was he doing that at the end of Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 24, but we would also read in those final 13 verses of the gospel of Luke, how Jesus had given commands to his apostles. Specifically, take a look, Luke 24 verse 47, a command that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. So Acts, 11, Acts 1, verse 12, just beyond where we read this morning. Look at verse 12 if you've got Acts 1 open. You'll see there that Luke tells us where this takes place. It takes place in the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives, that's a little kind of hill line running to the on the east side of the city of Jerusalem. The Mount of Olives. That's where this is taking place. We do know from the final verses of Matthew's Gospel... That there was an earlier meeting on a mountain in northern Israel, in Galilee, where Jesus also gave commands or a commissioning to his apostles. So they, throughout this 40 days, have received a charge from charges from Jesus. Reminders of what they have been called to do. And that involves not only Jerusalem, that involves not only Judea, the region, not only it involves Samaria, the the adjoining region, it involves the ends of the earth. It involves all nations who will hear this message, this good news. But I want you to notice specifically here how Luke describes in Acts 1 verse 2, how he describes this commissioning. Did you see what it says there? This charge that Jesus gives, it says that he commanded his apostles through the Holy Spirit. Isn't that interesting? Now, in some ways, that's a throwaway phrase. You could just take it out and it wouldn't change. Like, you could just read through it and it would sound normal to us. We wouldn't know anything was missing. So why does Luke add this little bit about giving them commands through the Spirit? Why add that phrase? Well, some of you may remember how Luke's gospel described Jesus at the beginning of his public ministry applying the words of Isaiah chapter 11 to himself saying, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Right out of the gate, that's what he was saying. And you may remember that even the very, that's Luke 4.18, you may remember in the very first verse of Luke chapter 4, that it says that Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit. Similarly, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus declares that he casts out demons by the Spirit of God. Matthew 12, verse 28 So if Jesus is now commanding or commissioning these apostles through the Holy Spirit, Jesus being full of the Holy Spirit, working according to the power of the Holy Spirit, it may be that Luke mentions this because he wants to emphasize that fact precisely because he wants to say something about the continuity between the ministry of Jesus and the soon-to-be ministry of the apostles. That Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit, working, working in power during his ministry. And this is, in fact, what Jesus is positioning his apostles for, the very same kind of ministry. Holy Spirit-empowered ministry. So what an encouragement to see that connection between what Christ was doing and what we as the church are called to do. Now, look back, if you would, at verses 4 and 5. Jesus himself goes on to tell us in verses 4 and 5. He says he wants them to stay in Jerusalem in order to wait for the promise of the Father, which, as he indicates, you heard from me. You heard about this already from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, anyone who's even just somewhat familiar with the gospel accounts of the ministry of Jesus, and specifically the ministry of John the Baptist, knows that this phrase, this statement, is found in all four gospels. Right, it's in all four Gospels: Matthew chapter three verse eleven, Mark chapter one verse eight, Luke chapter three verse sixteen, John chapter one verse thirty-three. John the Baptist says this: "I have come to baptize with the water, but there's one coming after me who is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire." We hear that regularly from him, but what exactly does it mean to be baptized with the Holy Spirit? There is some confusion on this this phrase but I think that we can say that if John's water baptism was an expression of repentance then the spirit's baptism is an experience of merger or union that's what scripture seems to indicate that John that the spirit's baptism is not an expression necessarily of some other inward idea. It's not symbolic. It's actually a real spiritual experience of merger and union. Um, Paul calls it being baptized into Christ in Galatians chapter 3 verse 27. Listen to how he explains it in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 13. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirits. That comes across real clear there, the idea of being baptized into something. Is it being baptized into the church? Not the church per se, but the body of Christ, which is the church. But it means that we're baptized into Christ. So this Holy Spirit baptism unites us To Christ and subsequently to one another. So, whenever the scriptures speak about being in Christ or in Him, we are only in Him because we have been baptized by the Spirit into Him. Does that make sense? That's what Paul is indicating here. And All of us share spiritual nourishment from him through the Spirit of God, as we see in the final part of that verse there. So this is exactly what we see, of course, in the very next chapter of Acts, Acts chapter 2, when the Spirit powerfully makes himself known through the sound of a mighty wind, the manifestation of tongues of fire, and the ability to speak in foreign languages. What's confusing is people ask, wait a minute, is that the way that the Spirit's baptism is always going to make itself known? Well, our charismatic and Pentecostal brothers and sisters would sometimes argue that, although they delete the mighty rushing wind sound and they delete the visible manifestations of the tongues of fire and just focus on the speaking in foreign languages, which has now become not any known language. It's become some kind of angelic speaking in tongues, language that no one knows. I don't think that squares with Scripture. I would say that what Luke presents to us here is the historic confirmation that the Holy Spirit really did come in this way to baptize distinct groups of people throughout the book of Acts. So if if we had time this morning, we would just read through the book of Acts and we would say, When does the Holy Spirit show up in this way? When does the Holy Spirit baptize in this way? And we would discover that the times that it's mentioned, the times that it's mentioned when he does come and and falls on people and they speak in different languages, that those are all distinct groups. The Jews, the Gentiles, the Samaritans, and the disciples of John the Baptist. You see, why would Luke want to do that? Why would God want to do that with these visible manifestations? Well, he wants to do that because he wants to he wants to show and Luke wants to record the fact that the Spirit was poured out on these different groups in exactly the same way as he had been upon the Jews on the day of Pentecost. He doesn't want there to be any thinking within the church that they do not have the Spirit like we have the Spirit. For in fact... Peter himself in Acts chapter 11, after coming back from Cornelius' house in Joppa, says to them, this is what happened. The Holy Spirit fell on these Gentiles that we once considered dogs, that we once considered unclean, that we would not sit with, that we would not eat with. He fell on them in exactly the same way he fell on us. And what does Peter quote in Confirmation? the words of John the Baptist. For our Lord told us that he would baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. You can look it up, Acts chapter 11. So this is all tied together in this way. This kind of manifestation occurred with these distinct groups in order to confirm that not only had the Spirit really come in actual history, but that all these groups really have received the same Spirit, and thus the same merger or union with Christ. We are all one in Christ Jesus. Isn't that what 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13 says? Yeah, so it's a beautiful way that we see that connection. But it had to be visible in the beginning with signs and wonders. It was visible with the rushing wind and the other languages to show and demonstrate that it actually had come in real history. Does that happen with us now? No. We already know that the Spirit has come to the body of Christ. And the moment that we believe, when the Holy Spirit, when the, when God works His saving work in us, that's when we are baptized by the Holy Spirit into Christ. So... Let's give praise to God and thank Him for this work of the baptism of the Holy Spirit that we hear about here. But Acts chapter 2 also records the fulfillment of of another aspect of the Spirit's work as declared by Jesus here in Acts chapter 1. So the key verse here in in Acts chapter 1 is verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses... In Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Now there it is, right? There it is. There is the power that we were talking about. The Holy Spirit is the promise of power. When we receive him, we receive power. This is what we see in Acts 2, as Peter is empowered to boldly testify of Jesus before a crowd of thousands. Fifty-five days earlier, or whatever it was exactly, 50 days earlier in fact, 50 days earlier, this is the same man who is denying Jesus. This is the same man who's in the alleyway crying because of his disloyalty, because of his lack of faith, and here he stands up in front of thousands and declares Jesus. You see, power, power, supernatural power, but as he indicates here in chapter 1, verse 4, Jesus had already told them, hadn't he? Jesus had already told them about the coming of the Spirit. He told them that this would be the case. Take a look at this set of verses. John 16, verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, Jesus said at that Passover meal, hours before his betrayal. It is to your advantage that I go away, that I return to the Father. For if I do not go away, the helper, the paraclete, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Even before that, in John chapter 15, verses 26 and 27, Jesus told these same men that when the helper comes... Whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you will also bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Wow, there's a connection there, isn't there? The Holy Spirit's bearing witness, but the apostles will be bearing witness. Could it be that there 's a connection between these two things, the bearing witness of the, the, the spirit bearing witness, and these men bearing witness? Well, I think there is. Even earlier in luke 's Gospel, chapter twelve verses eleven and twelve, he spoke to them explicitly about the spirit and their bearing witness. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, all that we see fulfilled in the book of Acts, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Don't you love that? Power to speak for Christ. The power promised they should have known this. They should have remembered he had already told them this. But here's the question. Is this true for you and me as well? Is this true for you and me as well? Do you want it to be? Do you want this to be true for you? We need to be sensitive to the original context, don't we? Too many times in Christian history, people have ransacked, cherry-picked the Scriptures, taking a phrase that was not spoken to them, wasn't even spoken to the church and run with it and said, oh, it's the promise of every believer. The promise of every believer. Here it is right here. And they've just ripped it out of the context. Right? And there's blood and guts just falling. Once they rip it out, it's ugly. It's ugly. It's not how we we handle the word of God. Who is being spoken to here? Well, we know it's the 12. Right? The 12 are the ones who are being spoken of, of here. But... As we acknowledge who's being addressed here, we want to look at the rest of Scripture and say, do we see something similar in terms of every believer in Jesus? Well, take a look at some of these verses that we'll put on the screen for you. I know it's small, but both Romans 15, 13 and Ephesians chapter 3, verse 16, both of those talk about explicitly, they talk explicitly about the power of the Holy Spirit at work in the believer. It's just two examples. Ephesians chapter 1 verses 15 through 20 also seems to connect the Spirit with power for the believer. In fact, there are many passages in the New Testament that talk about the Spirit's work in us. And there are many passages about God's power and strength at work in us. But are we empowered to be witnesses? As Jesus promised the apostles here, well, I believe that we are. I believe that we are let's think let 's think a little bit more about how that happens. So we know that the Word teaches that the gifts of the spirit are given to the church, right? First Corinthians chapter twelve is a good place to go to read about the gifts of the spirit, so while the gifts of the spirit mentioned in first corinthians twelve romans twelve first peter four They remind us that God's Spirit has empowered and does empower others, apart from the apostles, others to bear witness to Christ through the spoken word, through proclamation. What I hope I'm doing right now in this moment, bearing witness by the power of the Holy Spirit to His word, because of my gifting through the Holy Spirit. We know that is the case for some, but... We also know that the Holy Spirit empowers us to bear witness in other ways. Let me give you an example of that. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. Most of you know this. You know that. You could probably recite verses 22 and 23 by heart, especially if you grew up going to a Sunday school program or a VBS or something like that, right? You might have memorized this. So Paul talks about the harvest, the fruit that the Spirit of God brings out or bears in our lives. The Holy Spirit empowering, working to bring the life of Christ out in you. What does that life look like? Well, the very first descriptor there is what? Love. Love. So the Holy Spirit empowers us to love in a supernatural way. The love of Jesus now think for a minute about how that connects with the words of Jesus in John 13:35. Take a look at this next verse, John 13:35. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You see what I just did there? That's the fruit of the Spirit, love being manifest in the body of Christ, bearing witness to others that we serve Jesus, that we belong to Jesus, that, that our Lord, the Lord of love, is present and active among us. So Holy Spirit-empowered love to one another bears witness to our Lord, the Lord of love. And if we go on to think about it, we think about how love, that first descriptor of the fruit of the Spirit, how love inspires good works in us. Sitting with someone who's hurting, listening to their hearts, going that extra mile for a person, Reaching out in love, practicing grace-filled, loving hospitality with others. Giving of your time, talent, and treasure for the glory of God. For the salvation of another soul. To introduce them to Jesus, animated, empowered by love. So that we hear from Jesus and think about these good works. We hear and remember uh, Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 and 16. You are the light of the world. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. What's the light shining? Good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven. You see, the love inspired good works bear witness of the father, don't they? In that passage. They shine like, like blazing light. They shine. God shining through us. Now, is this a witness apart from knowledge? Is that what this is? Is this like, is this that kind of wonky phrase that people say? Preach the gospel to all people. Use words if necessary. <laughs> Don't let, no, stop, stop. To preach the gospel, you always have to use words. What I think the person is clumsily, clumsily saying is that God can often use our loving grace filled acts to confirm the word that we speak to to, to to beautify it or to give us a hearing to get, to gain us a hearing in somebody 's life when they see our love, they say, I want to know more. I want to hear about what drives you, first Peter chapter three, tell me about this hope that is in you. Well, guess what? We need to be prepared to give a defense for that hope, don't we? Prepared to answer as God would have us answer. So this is not a witness apart from knowledge. Both John 13 and Matthew 5, those reacting to our love or our loving works, they connect the Spirit's work in us back to Jesus or back to the Father. Right? You are Jesus' disciples. We give glory to the Father. Why do they do that? Because they know the testimony of our lives. We walk and talk Jesus. And then when they see us living it out, guess what they say? Wow, there's something to this. There's something real and true and powerful about what this person has said as I see them walking the talk. Brothers and sisters, friends, what kind of power do we need most? That's our question. What kind of power do we need most? The power we need most is not simply power to boldly share the gospel message, although it is that. It absolutely is that. And God knows that we so often need boldness. Amen? Oh, come on, you guys. God knows that we so often need courage, boldness to share about Jesus. Amen? Amen. Amen. He knows that need in us. But we need something bigger than that. It's more holistic than that. Take a look. We need the kind of power that empowers us to live for and bear witness to Jesus Christ in all things. That's what we need. The power to bear witness to Christ in all things, to live for and bear witness. No matter the challenges you face this morning, whether out there or in here, that's the power you and I need. You see, though we can so often look, and we do as human beings, We can so often look for power in all the wrong places for all the wrong reasons. God graciously offers us the only power that can truly change any and every circumstance. How? By changing you. Do you understand? By changing you, you may want with the deepest longing or desire of your heart to change something about your life, a circumstance, a relationship, a future, a past, whatever it may be. But God wants to begin by changing you. Yeah, he may actually change the circumstance or the person or the whatever it might be. He might actually do that. But even if he does not do that, he can change you and he will change how you see the circumstance, change how you endure through the circumstance, change what you change in terms of learning from the circumstance and growing through the circumstance, change your heart so that's not Full of, full of bitterness, but forgiveness. Changing that heart so that you're not so hard-edged, but you're soft, compassionate, tender, loving. You see, that's the power that we need. The power of the Holy Spirit. That's exactly the power the fa- Father promised and the Son confirmed here. The, sp- the power of the Spirit to transform our lives so that they reflect Jesus. And the New Testament bears witness to that same fact. God wants to bring you power in your life so that you reflect Jesus. Here in Acts 1, it's very specifically the declaration that we see so often. Now the rest of the book of Acts gives us many examples of the apostles also doing works of kindness and compassion, raising up the lame man, giving sight to the blind, raising the the dead back to life. They're doing these mighty works, works of compassion. But at all the time, they're declaring, right? They're proclaiming. What's this about the widows? Listen, appoint men, appoint seven men to take care of that. We do not need to neglect what we're doing. We need to be devoted to the word of God and prayer. That was their work that they were called to. And we see them doing that. That's specific to Acts chapter 1. But underneath that is the principle that the Holy Spirit empowered them to reflect Jesus Just like He does in your life if you've been baptized by the Holy Spirit. Which is code word for if you've been saved, if you actually know God and brought into right relationship with Him. Think about this. I mentioned to you earlier that in all three sections of this passage we find the same four elements present. Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the apostles, and talk about the kingdom of God. Now, some of you may have noticed that there's actually no explicit mention of the kingdom of God in verses 6 through 11. You were just waiting to pounce on me at the door or whatever afterwards, right? Oh, pastor, this is what you said, right? It wasn't there. And I go, aha, it was there. It's there. It's there. So look in verse 3. Verse 3, we learn during his resurrection appearances that Jesus was doing what with his disciples? Verse 3. He was continuing to speak to them about the kingdom of God. That's no surprise because that's what he was talking about his whole ministry. Right? That's the number one theme of Jesus. Don't give me this. Oh, Jesus talked about love. Love was his number one topic. Blah, 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 blah. Yeah. It was not. It was the kingdom of God. That was his heart. That's what he talked about all the time during his ministry. That was the main theme of the ministry of Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God. So it's no surprise he's continuing to talk about it in these resurrection, post, post-resurrection appearances. And in verse 6, it's clear the apostles are continuing to think about the kingdom as he's talking to them about the kingdom. But where is the kingdom here in the final set of verses? What happened to this theme of the kingdom? Notice that the question posed by the apostles in verse 6 is a good question. It's a really good question. However they envisioned it, however they pictured it, whatever it looked like in their mind's eye, the restoration that they are talking about here means the, that Israel's Messiah is reigning over all the kingdoms of the world. That's a glorious thing. That's a beautiful thing spoken about by the Old Testament prophets and psalmists and so on. That vision of Israel's Messiah reigning over all the kingdoms of the earth is what they're talking about. And as Jesus indicates in verse 7, the fullness of that reign will only happen according to the Father's timetable. It's in His hands. But... And here is how the kingdom is present in verses six through 11. The power to see that reign extended is the power of the Holy Spirit working through the witness of God's people. Yes, the kingdom will come in a full form one day when the Father decrees it. That set time. It's coming. But right now the kingdom is growing and it has been growing like a divine conspiracy, right? A little tiny something that is germinating and building and building and building. That's why Jesus told those parables because these guys were expecting them, you know, to come in with swords ablazing and clashing and riding in on a white horse and saying, get out Romans, boom. Israel, Messiah, is back in town. Where's the throne? Right? That's what they were saying. And Jesus was saying, that's not what the kingdom of God is like. It's not gonna be guns or swords blazing or you know, whatever. It's gonna start really small. And it's got to start permeating. Permeating permeating and growing and growing and growing. You see, this is the kingdom of God. The reign of King Jesus extending one heart at a time through the church's gospel-centered ministry. So don't tell me the kingdom's not in verses 6 through 11. That's what Jesus is saying to them. You're talking about the fullness, you guys, and that's up to the Father. You're not going to know about it. Heck, I don't even know the time, as Jesus admitted earlier. That's the father, not the son. It's the son's prerogative. That's the father. But what I'm going to tell you about the kingdom is this. I'm going to give you power. And that power is to be my witnesses. Why? To extend the kingdom reign through the hearts of those won by the power of the Holy Spirit to new life in Christ. Is he reigning over your heart this morning? is my question to you. Is he reigning over your heart this morning? Power is a good thing. Desiring power is not wrong. But this is the power we need most. This is the power that we need most. And receiving it begins with admitting that we are powerless. Amen? That's how you receive that power. When you forsake the other powers that you want so badly, right? Oh, if I could just get that job. If I could just get that position at work. Then I would be able to call the shots. And you know who the first three people I would slash from the payroll would be. Right? That would solve all my problems. No, 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 no. This is the power that we need. This is the power. It begins with admitting our powerlessness as sinners. Why did Jesus return to the Father? He returned to the Father because He had completed the glorious work of securing our redemption. The Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. As it's described in the Gospel of John. He did that. He he completed that work. He said it is finished and it was. A perfect man dying for sinners like us then rising again in power to give us power for a new life from God, for God. That good news is the reason that we can come and receive power from Him. When we admit our powerlessness... And we turn from our foolish pursuits of worldly power, fleshly power, human centered, me centered power, and we embrace Christ's and power through weakness that He demonstrated on the cross for us. That's when we find this power and we receive what we need most. So let's come. Before him this morning in prayer, let's come as powerless people seeking this power that we need most. Whatever the challenge in your life this morning, whatever the change you're seeking, this is the power we need most. Amen? Amen. Let's pray that we would have power to truly be his witnesses in every way.